Welcome back, listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoSIF podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecosiv.org. Today, Andrew Schwartz speaks with organic farming pioneer David Vetter. David has been an organic farmer in Nebraska for more than 40 years, and he has long been inspired to grow organic by his own theological commitment to being a good steward of the earth. He now runs the successful, organically certified business, Grain Place Foods. David also recently starred in the documentary film, Dreaming of a Vetter World, which looks at the history of the Vetter's farm, the struggles they have faced against big ag or chemical agriculture, and their experiment to regenerate the soil through organic farming methods. Andrew talks with David about his role in the film, the differences between organic farming and industrial agricultural methods, the practical and spiritual importance of being in connection with the land, and the benefits of buying organic, locally grown food. And now, here's Andrew and David. I'm with David Vetter, pioneer in American organic farming, head of Grain Place Foods, and the star of the new documentary film, Dreaming of a Vetter World. So welcome, David. Thank you. Now, you come from a family of farmers, correct? Yes. Um, Can you say a little about your story, and how did you get into organic farming? My father was raised on a farm, and and his father before him was raised on a farm, and uh, after World War II, my dad started farming, and uh, he uh, took a lot of the short courses offered by the university and kind of introducing ag chemicals and synthetic fertilizers into agriculture. There had been some use, but it was pretty limited. And uh, his experience, the first few years farming, led him to make the decision they weren't really telling him the truth about those things. And, mm. 1953 in a field one day he decided that what he was seeing it wasn't right and he decided he was going to quit using that stuff so he did no what was he seeing uh he saw soil degradation he saw changes in wildlife he was missing some of the birds he was used to seeing in the fields and around the borders and you know they kept telling him in all of those short courses pushing the chemicals that they wouldn't hurt the soil or the environment and and they would just do this or just do that and didn't take him long to see that they did a whole lot more than that, and it wasn't positive. So he started looking for alternative ways of doing farming. Started looking at alternatives. Uh, I mean, even as a kid growing up, I don't ever remember when we didn't see organic farming and natural food and farming magazines and biodynamics quarterly and, and some of the early works of people involved in they called natural farming and stuff early on, which we now would look at as like the fathers of organic agriculture going clear back to Sir Albert Howard and Eve Balfour and Fred Sykes and Rudolf Steiner. So those are all around the house all the time when I was growing up. So I think you've mentioned um, in other places, you've spoken about the difference between um, organic and sustainable farming. Could you say a little about that distinction for well, you? Well, for us, the distinction between sustainable and organic, that uh, sustainable is really an effort to maintain the status quo. 
and for us organic uh, would come closer as a family description of what we were trying to do on the farm would more resemble what we would call regenerative organic agriculture today and so that was kind of our standard and how we looked at, at what we were developing on the farm. So what would you say some of the differences are between your methods of, of farming and the typical, what you see, I guess, industrialized agricultural practices uh, that sort of dominate most of the U.S. today? Yeah. What we've tried to do on, on our own farming operation is to develop a management system that regenerates, renews, or reclaims soil. So the focus is soil, and it always has been. And uh, we've taken the approach that we're willing to give up income in order to improve soil quality because we feel like that offers more opportunity and, and more potential return in the long run. And I don't think anybody wants to start farming thinking they're going to be done in a few years. I think they're looking at the future <laughs> in, in, in it. So what sort of things do you do to help lead to healthy soil? You know, the first thing uh, we did was start using cover crops and leaving uh, crops in the field, especially uh, when we were growing alfalfa and clover mixes in there. Instead of harvesting that last bit, we worked it back into the soil. And, uh, you know, early on, when I started farming, we had uh, we had the land because my father and grandfather had purchased the farm. So and it had mostly been paid for in the from the 1953 when they bought it till I got there in 75, so that wasn't a big issue, but I had no machinery. And uh, having just finished graduate school, I'd only been able to save about $1,500. Mm. And that doesn't go very far, even on a tractor in 1975. So, <laughs> <laughs> so cash flow is really important. And uh, so we did some things that were quite frankly destructive, but if we were gonna stay on the land, we had to figure that one out, so. Early on, we just made a decision that if we couldn't get a certain value out of some of our hay crops that we needed for cash flow, I just hauled them back out to the field to get that organic mm. matter in there to work it up and build soil structure and improve tilth and water holding capacity. And and that seemed to work. Well, that, that helped. And then as time went on, how do we integrate that more? How do we do that better? And what I'd looked at in, in ecology and, and in some of my experience in previous employment I had while I was in graduate school, perennial grasses are a big help, and prairie is a real model for perennial grasses and ruminants. So we started shifting to a, a more complex rotation, longer terms, and, and rotating uh, perennial grasses for three to four years with intensive grazing management. And uh, that really started to make a difference, and we've been doing that now for about 20 years. That's fantastic. I think a lot of people, especially um, non-farmers, will hear organic and organic produce, and they'll just think sort of USDA-approved organic, and, and, and I think usually just that becomes synonymous with no chemicals, no fertilizer. But it's that what you're describing is much more holistic. It's about crop yeah. rotation and about reintegrating. And, and I think the, the USDA organic standard, I mean, I, I spent a lot of hours working on standards, and. I was in the room when the first proposal was made to uh, Patrick Leahy's office back in 1989, I guess it was. And it's a, it's a starting line from my approach. You've got to be at least that far to be able to start building in that regenerative or that reclamation management strategy. But uh, you know, it's a starting line and I think too many people today use it as the goal. Hmm. So what is the goal? Well. For us, and we set that discipline for the family farm, is how do we make the farm 
more productive? How do we improve the quality of the resource and still make a fair living for the family on the farm? And if you don't do that, you don't have the opportunity to continue. And uh, under that discipline, I guess, is, is the best way to say it. But so yeah. our, probably our last input product for production, other than seed and fuel, was, I think, uh, I can't remember for sure whether it was 99 season or the 2000 season. So Wow. And the quality of what we've been able to produce has, has continued to improve since that time. So we kind of think we're on the right track. <laughs> it sounds like it. You know, everybody eats. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> so food is, so. <laughs> food is really important. And it seems that a key to sustainable agriculture and, and having mm-hmm. food security is healthy soil. And the kinds yeah. of things that you're doing mm-hmm. to, to lead toward a healthier soil seems so important. And now you're talking about how your practices actually have great yield with, with less sort of... Mm-hmm need for external inputs and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. It's cheaper, it's just better for the soil, it's better for us. Then why, why isn't everybody doing this? I think one of the main reasons everybody doesn't do that is because it's more work and it takes a lot more thought. And uh, with the modern recipe farming, so to speak, that we see today, you can do it with your cell phone if you want to dial up somebody to go plant for you and call the uh, fertilizer dealer they'll take care of putting on fertilizer and spray it if it needs to be sprayed and you can hire somebody to come make that decision for you too this you've got to know your resource you got to know your farm and uh, you got to understand how to manage the diversity and stuff that it takes to make a balanced system like that work and it just takes a lot more time to think about what you're doing hmm. Sounds like this kind of farming, um, this kind of way of thinking about farming and also sort of engaging in farming mm-hmm. ties the farmer more closely to the land. Whereas I think I've, I've talked mm-hmm. to farmers who say, you know, in industrialized agriculture, you know, you're sitting on a tractor, you're really just separate from the land, you're not even yep. getting in it. When I hear you talking, I hear somebody who's really connected to the sort of the heartbeat of what's going on in this farm. Yeah, we have been struggling on the farm the last three seasons because we're trying to transition to younger people to do the management. We don't have any family members in the current generation and the next generation coming up that is interested. We have a number that are interested in the farm but are definitely not going to be farmers. And so we're trying to introduce new people to that and to get them to think about that uh, and to understand, you know, what the farm's telling them. So I try to encourage them to walk the farm because the feedback you can get just from walking mm. on the soil is important, but you don't get that unless you do it frequently and you do it throughout the season. And so being in connection with the land is important. For me, that was also had significant spiritual implications about my relationship to the land, too. So a little bit different twist, I guess. Oh, that's one. Can you say a little about that? Um, yeah, I don't know how to say a little bit about that. <laughs> I just know that it's there. And uh, there are certain things you get from that connection to the land that, that go a long ways in helping you make management decisions. And I can't explain it. I have no idea how to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you've experienced it. Yeah. 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 And usually if I get something that comes to me from that relationship and somebody asks me why I did that, by the time I've done it, then I've been able to figure out a good reason based on science why I've made that decision. <laughs> so that's what I go with. <laughs> So this, this challenge that you've faced the last few years of, of getting a new generation of people really um, committed mm-hmm. to this, this type of farming, what do you think the greatest challenge is for that? Uh, 
you know, it's, it's finding somebody that's genuinely interested in, in soils, environmental health, the bigger picture of uh, mm. farming and what it means locally to your community and ultimately globally. So, But it all starts at home, where you are, where you're doing what you do on the land. And uh, the more people that we can get to do that, I think the more we can make change. It's one piece at a time. And so I guess that's one of the reasons when people call and want to know if I, they can come talk about the farm and, and the farming, I've just always said, come when you can, and I'll give you as much time as I can. But I've, the only way I know how is to, to share it on that personal level. That's yeah. what it is. So that's what we've always done. And it's so interesting. Food, you would think, should be deeply personal. I mean, we're putting this yeah. into our bodies, and yeah. it sustains us. Yeah. Um, but so often so, people are really, especially the people within cities, I mean, they, there's just such a disconnect from there, where their food comes from. Huge, huge disconnect. When I was a seminary student, I worked at a living history farm, and we used to host kids. And we had kids as old as sixth grade that found out where milk really came from that swore they were never going to drink milk again. <laughs> they just thought it came from the back of the store. You know, I don't know how they thought the store got it, but that total disconnect from what it takes to really put food on the table. And chocolate and, milk comes from brown cows, oh, not course, white ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, it, it, the really tough one is the strawberry flavored stuff, you know. <laughs> but What advice would you give to farmers who feel trapped, maybe, um, even per, perhaps financially trapped in what we've seen as destructive agriculture practices, but they actually care about the future of the planet. Uh, you know, I have talked to several farmers that feel trapped at. They're, they're so close to retirement age when they know they're going to have to leave the land that to begin to make that investment, it's in some cases, I think would probably put their retirement years in jeopardy to mm. do that because it does cost to make that transition. And while you can maintain some, I would guess in many cases, an okay level of income, certainly not going to be able to save anything. So those are really tough situations that a lot of farmers are in. I mean, I had a neighbor tell me that if he was younger, he'd make the change when I first started in the mid-70s. So, yeah. But he knew he was going to be approaching retirement shortly, and it wasn't very many years. And the other combination with that that creates a problem is a lot of these farmers are tenant farmers. They don't own the land. And if the mm -hmm. landlord isn't committed to that, it's a really tough situation to do because it requires investment into the resource. And if you're a tenant farming, you don't want to have to make that investment if you know you can't be there years down the road to reap some of the benefit of doing that. What do you see as, as some of the greatest obstacles for the U.S. going, let's say, 100% mm -hmm. organic farming? Oh, uh, right now, just the commitment to, to do it, but because it's not a quick transition. It's going to take some time. And uh, my dad had done the farm, or at least his part that he owned, all organic for uh, seven, eight years before he had to quit because of health issues. But, you know, that takes time. And then we had to start over again because it was leased for 15 years while I finished grad school. One of the things that my father always told me, even back in the 50s when we were really trying to figure it out yet in some ways, that we'd have a lot more organic farms if we could get the right fathers and the right sons together. Oh, yeah. And you never knew which generation was pulling the transition one way or the other. Because sometimes it was the older one that wanted to shift to the new stuff, and it was the younger one in the combination that wanted to stay with the more traditional stuff and figure out how to manage that. And then the more absentee landowners we've got, 
the easier it became for them to help manage their land resources. If they could call a, a, a farm manager and basically take the recipe approach, as I call it. <laughs> I like the recipe approach. That's good. Yeah. Does this organic model apply only to professional farmers, or can this be replicated in smaller plots on urban gardens and I, things like that? Yeah, it has, it has all kinds of applications. Every situation is different, even on a larger scale operation. I mean, we have a small farm as farms go in our area right now. It's about 280 acres, probably 10, maybe 15% of the average in our area. And when I started, that same farm was probably uh, 35 to 40% of the average farm size. So it's that much of a change in the last wow. 40 years. So all of those situations make a difference. Diversity is important, so that makes the management system more complex. And large-scale operations don't work real well with a lot of complexity. So those are all things that would have to be worked through and with a concentration of ownership and a lot of it non-farm. You know, they're, they're looking at the bottom line at the end of the year, and that becomes more important than preserving the resource and, right. and uh, protecting the, the environment. So which I think is a trend we see in, in businesses across the board, focusing yep. on quarterly gains yep. and short-term yep. goals and bottom lines. And It's not much different from that, and it's more of an, an exploitation model than it is a, a nurturing model. Wow. So we've talked a lot about the, the production side, um, but that's only one side of sustainable farming. So what advice do you have for our consumers, for those of us making food choices on a daily basis? Well, that, that gets to be a little more difficult. Uh, you need to be able to find some kind of connection to the primary producer, and with a lot of manufactured or processed food products, you have no idea where it came from or, or what the individuals are doing. I think that's a role where some of the certification comes in. It's certainly a step forward to work with something that carries the USDA organic certification logo. That's a good starting point. But if you're really committed to that, you'll do as much as you can local where you know the farmer. There's a lot of small farmers around that aren't certified that are doing really good work. And if you know that, you can support them. The other thing is, you know, if you're going to do that and you want that extra investment, it's going to cost you more. I don't like to hear the uh, the labeled premium price product because it's not. It's it's probably more of a fairly priced product than what the competition is throwing out there. It's well put. And uh, so we need to talk about really fair market price and, and value price. Just reading an article here just today that about the increased levels of pesticides and how fast that changes in an individual's body just going to organic food. I mean, it's less than two weeks, and you can drop those levels about 90%, I think. Wow. That's huge. And we don't know how all of those different things affect you health-wise. And with what we're learning about the microbiome and everything recently, uh, that has so many implications on mental health and, and everything else. That, And a lot of these are antimicrobials in one function or another. So how is that skewing us? And it catches up with you over time. It's not what happens with what you ate today. It's what you've been eating every day for the last 10 years that's going to get you in the end. Yeah. But we don't really understand that yet. I think that's a real problem because we don't understand the impact of a lot of the synthetics that we use in industry or agricultural industry that I call it. More of an agrarian process or an explanation of what we're talking about because it's more of a nurturing role than uh, figuring out how much you can get out of the system. Yeah, that, and that's a fundamental paradigm shift. I think it's a, a whole different way of thinking about food, about mm -hmm. our, our relation to the mm -hmm. land and nature. 
Um, mm -hmm. And about farming as part of a larger global system of systems. You're a farmer mm -hmm. and you work the land and you produce food, but it also has implications for health. It's tied into economic mm -hmm. systems, political systems. There's an educational component, um, yep. value systems about what people's priorities are. We got to appreciate the full value of the term agriculture and not forget the culture part of it. And it Beautiful. has implications for individuals, communities, states, nations, the global community. So I think it's a really important piece. Is it enough to say maybe maybe one step? Because I feel like it can be overwhelming for people when they think, oh, there's just so much going on and industrialized agriculture industry, as you said, is this massive monster. What concrete steps can people take? I, I have problems referring to agriculture or uh, livestock production and any food production as an industry because yeah. I think it implies kind of a hands-off arm's length, uh, I put this in and put this in, I expect to get this out, and it's so much more than that. Exactly. And we've got to learn to appreciate that. But the other thing is to look for those symbols on your packaging and your labels that tell you that at least somebody's taken mm -hmm. some care along the way to preserve the integrity of what the land can produce if it's uh, managed well. And like you said, you know, trying to know where your food comes from, you know, going to farmers markets, connecting with people who are actually producing the food is. You know, is you you can go you can go to the grocery store and you can buy some uh, produce with USDA organic seal on it and make a step in the right direction. But if you want to really get down and to support it where it becomes important, you do it at the farmers market. Yeah. And uh, it'll reward you because the quality is going to be better. You won't have something that probably traveled for. 48 hours or, or more to get to market and it's fresh delivered at the produce aisle, but it's already five days old. You can go to the farmer's market and it's probably picked that morning. So the value of what you receive there is significant. Do you see an increase in like small farm co-ops and those sorts of things as a model moving forward or? We see an increase in, in, in that and it's a really a struggle for a lot of small farmers trying to do that that are producing. They've got great yields and they got high quality product, uh, but finding the consumer that's willing, right. willing to pay the price for it. Some of the patterns we see in some of the farmers markets with the young farmers that I know that are trying to make a go of it and are doing really good work is that at the farmer's market, people come shop for what they want, and then they go buy the cheapest they can find, but they're not getting the quality that they made the decision on. <laughs> and uh, supporting it directly as much as you can and being willing to pay a fair price for the quality you receive is important. For some people, that's a hard decision to make. I have a personal friend that had some really uh, behavior and health problems with their children and finally convinced her to put them on an all-organic diet and uh, they did, and within, I think, the first year, she had, I think, five kids, and she went through about uh, eight to ten gallon of milk a month that she bought organic at the market. So that was not an insignificant investment, but they prepared their own food. They cooked more, so their total bill for the year was only about $600 more. Hmm. Somebody said, comment was, well, that's quite a bit. She says, yeah, but my... Uh, medical bill went down by about $15,000. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and my kids are doing well in school and they weren't before. So y you've got the trade-off. I mean, you can pay that bill up front. When you buy quality food, it's a lot more enjoyable than medical treatment after. You are sort of the, the star of this documentary, Dreaming of a Better World. Can you say a little about this? What is this film about? Oh boy. Uh, it's about a lot more than, than our farm. I mean, it's about 
uh, you know, communities and, and, and people and, and uh, maybe some of the journey that people have taken to go from a, a more conventional approach to an organic management system and the difference it's made to their families. It happens to be centered around our, our family a little bit, probably because we had the longest history in the area. Mm-hmm. You know, it covers some of the struggles, the ups and downs, and social impact of that, of being the, the weird guy out there or the outlier in, in the community. And from times that people wouldn't talk to you about farming till now maybe they're asking some questions. And maybe you're not crazy after all. Well, maybe not. <laughs> I'd say the jury's still out on that one, but... <laughs> Well, is there anything else you'd like to add or share that we haven't talked about yet? Maybe the only other thing, our experience as a family and that's covered in the film is is not unique. Hmm. That's happened with a number of families across the country. So, you know, it's a different context and a lot of things are different, but the process or the journey is similar. So I know a lot of farmers that were starting that project back in the the mid to early 80s. It just so happened my dad started it in the early 50s. So that gives us a little bit longer history and time to make more mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) And learn from those mistakes and share them with others. We're hoping we have what sometimes you wonder. So... (laughs) Well, David, thank you so much for being here and sharing a little about your story. It's really inspiring uh, to see all that you and your family are doing um, in nurturing the land in a new type of agriculture. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me.